Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Jeff Klender, CEO of UR Energy. They're a US-based uranium junior. We talked to him uh, with regards to today's announcement by Cameco that they're going to restart Cigar Lake. What are the implications? What does Jeff make of it? And what's that going to do for the price in the marketplace? We also talked to him about the nuclear fuel working group process, especially in relation to the U.S. House Appropriations Committee announcement not to fund the uranium reserve. We talked about the Russian suspension agreement, quite an animated uh, Jeff on that topic. So do listen in and enjoy the podcast. Jeff, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing fine. Uh, you know, I'm being a good boy. I'm, uh, I am isolating in place. I am uh, functioning remotely and I'm I guess I'm finding that being a recluse suits me. I'm thinking about uh, making this a permanent condition. Uh, wow. I've decided. You know, That's good. For on that. There seems to be a bit of a, I'm not sure, I think there's been a petition circle. Uh, so uh, <laughs> we'll see how that plays out. Okay. I promise I didn't start it. Uh, <laughs> So you're being a good boy and you're being effective. I'm glad to hear it, Jeff. Well, we wanted to speak to you because we love your directness uh, and your views on the marketplace. There's a few things happened since we last spoke, obviously. So, um, and I am going to come to the Cameco call, but I'm going to leave the best to the last, all right? So U.S. House Appropriations Committee, they basically blocked the uh, uranium reserve funding of 150 million bucks. What's your take on that? What do you know? They did. Well, uh, first of all, I think that we all know that uh, this came about uh, as a result of the working group, which released its report on April 23rd. So for the uninitiated, let's let's give a bit of context here. Working group started as a result of uh, our failed 232 action in July of last year. So one year ago today, uh, it was supposed to be done in, in 90 days. Uh, it was delivered to the White House in November. However, it was not released to the public until April 23rd. Now, on July 6th, the, uh, the House uh, Water or Energy and Water Appropriations Committee came out with their appropriations bill. And, of course, the $150 million did not make it into the bill. Uh, what they did say was that they were allotting up to, and I think that's critical to qualify that, that they were allotting up to 180 days to gather more information or more specifically for the Department of Energy to provide them with more information and further to provide them with justification. Now, I think it's important to note here that we have spoken to the personnel who have been directly engaged with uh, the Appropriations Committee uh, from DOE, they were both surprised and not to say, I think I don't think I'm speaking that term, they were perturbed by it. They felt that they had interacted with them uh, and giving them, given them everything that they had asked for for months. And the 180 days, you notice, would push us past the first of the year. I think that it was nothing more than a delay tactic. I, I like to say things as they are, and I think it was a delay tactic. And I would emphasize one other thing, and that is that the our House of Representatives is Democrat-controlled. This is precisely what we were anticipating. So uh, no surprises here. No surprises, but... There's hope also in the, in the fact that the Senate Appropriations Committee 
hasn't said no yet. That's correct. And so that becomes the question. Where do we go from here? How do we get there? So first course of action would be, of course, is that we get it inserted into the Senate appropriations bill. Now, I think the thing that needs to be uh, noted there is that we are being told that the Senate will not have its appropriations bill submitted until the end of September. Now, that sounds like a long way away, but it's 60 days. Unfortunately, it also coincides with the United States government fiscal budget and the end of that budget year. So uh, that's, that's fine, but that is one of the issues. It's almost certain that it will be included in the uh, Senate appropriations bill. Now, if for whatever reason it, is, it fails to make it into the Senate appropriations bill, it can also be brought to the floor in the form of a floor amendment and that can take place and that can be brought by any one of the members. And of course, if that were to be necessary, uh, we are prepared to take that action. We hope that that, we don't believe that that will be the case. We believe that we will see that uh, in the in the Senate appropriations bill. So it's, the, and that's not the only way that this could come about. Uh, in addition to that, one of the things that I think is not well understood is that the Department of Energy does have the ability to make this appropriation themselves out of current funding. So one of the things that you may have, that you saw in the House Appropriations Bill was, I believe, it was either 42 or 43 billion dollars that was allocated for the Department of Energy, which represented, I believe, an eight percent increase year over year. And so it can be taken out of one of the other pockets from the DOE. And in fact, I, I pulled up a quote that I thought was particularly relevant. It, uh, this is according to consultant Trade Tech. Industry sources indicated that there was some acknowledgement that the DOE should start preparing for the launch of the U.S. Uh, uranium reserve and storage program based on current funding. So that from Trade Tech. So um, whether or not that's going to be the case, uh, I really don't know. But uh, as we were talking about earlier, Secretary of State Dan Burlett has had a lot to say about this since it failed to make it into the appropriations bill on July 6th. And some of his comments, he made these comments in front of the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Energy two weeks ago. Uh, in that note, he stated that the department's nuclear fuel working group wants American-owned uranium and plans to begin processing U.S. uranium into high-grade fuel at a DOE facility in Portsmouth, Ohio, as early as next year. What they have been doing is that they have been transferring uh, the uh, centrifuges um, from other locations to the Portsmouth facility to reactivate it. So uh, that would actually bring enrichment, domestic enrichment, back to the United States on a much faster calendar than even what the working group report called for, since they did not technically call for it until 2025. So I think that that's, that's or 2023, excuse me. So I think that's important to note that, uh, that Brulette is making, he's making uh, statements on this and, and he's, he's talking a lot about it. Uh, so in addition to that, I think it's also important, and I want to make one other comment because the question is, how do we get to the 150 million? And that is, it can be introduced in the form of legislation. And one of the things that Burlette announced, and this was in uh, a publication called The Utility Dive, 
not really familiar with them, but it was stated, in addition, DOE and Dan Burlett is working with Representative Robert Lata, an Ohio Republican and a member of the subcommittee on legislation authorizing the creation of the uranium reserve. And I will note that we know of at least one other piece of legislation that is in the works right now in draft form, although I am uh, not at liberty to speak about that. So we know that there are as that there will at least be two pieces of legislation that will be introduced to uh, Congress uh, with respect to the uranium reserve. So there's a lot. There's a lot of movement. This is the this is the problem with dealing with government. There's a lot <laughs> of moving parts, right? And lots of agendas, personal, political party, and otherwise. And to get involved with that, you, you're never going to be in control of those moving parts. You know, I think sometimes it's easier to get a, a, a fighter jet through than it is for the national security of the energy of the country, which is, which you know, that's a whole other discussion. But. Um, is this frustrating for you or is this critical for you? You've started a process, you wanted to see it through, but you're not in control of that. So, yeah, are you frustrated or is this critical to your business? Well, this is this actually goes back to July of 2017 when we met with Rick Perry in his offices. And one of the things that Rick Perry said to me, I was able to get a few seconds with him, uh, you know, after the UPA meeting with there's a lot of people in the room. He's effectively saying to us, look, bring me something that can be investigated and a determination to be made by the Department of Commerce and that can be put on the president's desk for a final decision. He noted to everybody in the room, this is the Uranium Producers of America, do not let this thing go through Congress how right he was. Uh, you get in the middle of this and in fact you can, it's uh, it's so convoluted that it, it really is beyond frustrating. It can be confusing at times. And so we, we've dealt with this frustration. How critical is the working group? I, I think that it's vital. I think that we would love to see that 150 million a year even though I consider it to be just a good first step although I consider it to be wholly inadequate for preserving the front end of the fuel cycle. What is actually more important, and I think that you have to look at this holistically, what is happening with the Russian suspension agreement, because this can have impact for many years to come, and also what's happening in terms of our supply-demand fundamentals, because those are evolving and changing very quickly as well. We'll come on, we'll come on, we'll come on to RSA in just a second. So I just want to you know, address a specific point around frustration versus critical, which is I know you've got inventory. You've got inventory, and that has a value on your balance sheet. It's not the value you want because you don't believe that the price in the market is where it needs to be, and it'll go higher. You've also got a bit of cash in there as well because you've, you've got you've got contracts. So critical versus frustration. Does does this uh, affect your ability to do business in the next six months? No, uh, quite to the contrary. We uh, we're, we're doing we have our board meetings today and tomorrow, and uh, we've had uh, meetings with our auditors and we we use PwC best in the world. They're great guys. Unfortunately, every five years, you get a new team assigned to you. So we get the, we've got the new team this year. So we've had to ramp them up on everything that we do. But uh, we're in a solid position. Um, we know that we have uh, 12 months ahead of us. 
uh, if we did not, uh, and, and I think this is important to emphasize, then we would be required to insert going concern language in our quarterlies. We have no such requirements. So we know that we've got solid runway for another year. And uh, depending on what happens over the course of the, of the next few months, uh, we should be in a position where I, we're very hopeful that we will see the value of our inventory growth. Okay, so I'm going to couple um, what's been going on there with the US uh, uh, House Appropriations Committee's decision with what you're intimating, which is it's political. It's they're putting it off until the, the next um, the, you know, until after the elections. Um, obviously, so that's a big moment. That's clear. That's clear. That's clearly a big moment for the industry as, as a whole. So I, I won't make this about the election. So let's talk about RSA. Well, unless you want to. Have you got something to say on that? Let me just make one last comment with respect to the working group, and that is with respect to process. Now, we've, as I mentioned to you, the, the Senate will not come with its appropriations bill. They're saying until the end of September. No, no decision is going to be made on the budget bill in its entirety until after the election. So what you have here is that immediately after the elections, you are going to see the House and the Senate engage in what are called conference negotiations. That is just a very nice term for saying that the pork will be flying. Uh, my pork's better than your pork. My pork needs to stay in the bill. Your pork needs to stay, get it, needs to be removed from the budget. So more than likely, they will fight this out until the 23rd of December when they're both, they're thoroughly exhausted and angry, and they will come up with a bill or a budget uh, that none of them like, but they want to go home for Christmas. So it will, it, they'll live with it. And that's what we all get to live with as a society here in the United States. Uh, how is that system? It's broken, but uh, it is what it is. So that's what the process is, and that's how it will play out. And we will do everything in our power to make sure that that $150 million is included in that final budget. And the RSA, the Russian Suspension Agreement, it's pretty much played by the same sorts of rules, isn't it? It's a little different. Uh, the beauty of that is at least Congress is not involved. Congress is hopelessly partisan. They will never agree on anything. I think that uh, what's going on in America right now is just a, a cluster almost beyond imagination. Um, nobody would have anticipated this. I don't think anybody in the country would have anticipated what we're seeing playing out uh, politically in the halls of Congress on the Capitol Hill and, and in the streets of major cities in America right now. Um, this is uh, this is not about the death of one man at the hands of a police officer in uh, Minneapolis. This is about anarchy. This is about the overthrow of America as we know it. And um, if we fail to take decisive action after this election, obviously. I don't think we're going to see it before the election because uh, it's it's too politically charged. After the election, it needs to be, in my view, it needs to be put down and it needs to be put down hard. And um, infer what you will from that statement, but it needs to be put down hard. And right. I hope that that will be the case. Yes, yeah, it's tough times in the States. It's not good viewing from outside the States, I have to say. Uh, it's a very divided country at the moment, and I hope some way you guys can um, work out how to get together at least at least on the nuclear subject at least okay um yep. but but just just on the rsa components you know you started answering it but you, you got distracted by um 
you know, what's going on in the States, but the RSA, the Russian Suspension Agreement, long ago, you know, since, you know, since the 70s, you know, you've, you've had to deal with, you know, Russian um, supply. You've got the suspension agreement in place. It's got to be resolved by the 31st of December this year. If it's not, the whole, you know, we call the whole thing off. So what do you think is going to happen? Okay, let me let me give some context there and let me also give you we are interested parties, so we have status in those negotiations and so we have been intimately involved in them every step of the way since the first quarter. Keep in mind that uh, the Russian suspension agreement has been in place for 28 years since 1992. And I will give our government officials and the Department of, of Commerce credit for entering into this agreement, I believe, for the right reasons. Keep in mind, this was a politically charged time. The wall had come down just three years earlier. There were scientists disappearing. There was plutonium disappearing. There were bombs that were disappearing. The Russian suspension agreement was an attempt to provide much needed cash flow to a government that was in shatter, that had been shattered by the, by the, by the wall coming down. And let's face it, one of the best ways that they were raising funds was through the sale of some of the most liquid assets they had. And that was technology, that was plutonium, and that was nuclear weaponry. We had to put a stop to it. So buying what we had hoped started out to be would be primarily blended down plutonium was the intent of the Russian suspension agreement. And then that went well through the 90s. And then Vladimir Putin came into power. And one other thing happened, and that was the Kazakhs in 1999 were let out of the suspension agreement. So they started building up and ramping up immediately. Vladimir Putin saw the suspension agreement for its potential to be used as the geopolitical weapon that he has certainly used it as ever since then. So what's been happening is that there have been a series of call them administrative reviews, and there was a major one in 2008, but there have been two or three since then. And what the Department of Commerce is engaged in right now is yet another administrative review. It was called for by one of the enrichment players, and the, uh, and the Department of Commerce has been seeing that through. We've been engaged in the process roughly since February. Now, since that time, in the interim, we saw the National uh, uh, the Nuclear Fuel Working Group report come out on April 23rd. The Department of Commerce has said, look, since that report came out, we treat that as the law of the land. We all know what was called for in there. The establishment of a, of a uranium reserve, um, the, the diminishment of regulatory constraints, um, the ability of the NRC to stop the flow of nuclear material or coming into the United States anytime they felt it was appropriate for national security purposes and also to pave the way to facilitate small modular reactors and micro reactors that are coming in the middle of the decade. But also they emphasize that we had to rebuild the nuclear fuel cycle starting with the front end of the fuel cycle, U-308 and conversion and ultimately in 2023, enrichment. We already talked about how that appears to be taking place more quickly now, which is a good thing, by the way. It's a good thing for our utilities. It's a good thing for our national security. So I think that the, um, the Department of Commerce has been engaged with the Russians in negotiations. And I 
don't think that I'm being asked. Well, I have to be careful what I say here because I am uh, under stipulation and I am restricted in what I can say. So if I speak in somewhat cryptic fashion at times, please forgive me, but it's because I am restricted. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Department of Commerce released on June 17th their post-preliminary analysis memorandum. In that memorandum, they basically came to the conclusion after a series of administrative reviews that the Russian suspension agreement was leading directly to price suppression over the last several years, and that the contracts, the massive, and I can't stress enough the term massive, contracts that our domestic utilities have entered into with the Russians and the Kazakhs were leading directly to current price suppression and will lead to further price suppression in the future. It also concluded that the Russian suspension agreement in its present form was no longer in the best interest of the United States and it called for the amendment and extension of that agreement. Stipulating, saying straightforwardly in the memorandum that if that could not be accomplished, then the, we needed to then resume what was the order of the day back in 1992, and that was the in-depth investigation and the tariffs of 120% of material coming in from Russia. So one of the things that I would stress to your viewers is that when you talk about the Russian suspension agreement, suspension refers to the suspension of that investigation and of those tariffs. So if nothing is accomplished here, by, January, by December 31st, then what you have is the suspension then goes away and you get the resumption of the full-scale investigation and the tariffs. So what happened was, is that we got a note uh, from the uh, Department of Commerce uh, where they indicated, and I want to make sure I have my date correct here, uh, they came out and they announced uh, that they would be... Um, that, they, that the administrative review would be told, T-O-L-L-E-D, for 60 days. And so now the administrative review has been extended to October 5th, during which time we can either amend and extend the Russian suspension agreement, or then we get to the end of the year. And, and it doesn't even have to wait till the end of the year. If no agreement is reached by October 5th, then presumably, and I say presumably, it's called for under the agreement, the Full-scale investigation will continue, will resume, as will the tariffs. So this is what we know right now. What's your bet for January 1st? What's the state of play? January 1st, I think, first of all, we will already know the outcome of the Russian suspension agreement. We will further know whether or not the working group, whether or not we've been successful through that morass that is the political process. We'll know whether or not we've been successful in getting the 150 million into the budget. But I think that one of the things that is worth noting right now, and I'm not gonna go into any details on this, but sure. what emerged is that the United States utilities, they are interested parties, just as we are, and they have status, and so they are engaged in these negotiations. But one of the things that I wanna make, that I wanna emphasize is that they've become the third leg of the stool. I would say that they have gotten to the point where they are exercising outsized influence and absolutely inappropriate control of this process. And it is uh, so much so that you wonder 
who the Department of Commerce is really negotiating with. I just asked the question. And I think that it's it's noteworthy that these utilities have been, they have orchestrated this scheme to put massive contracts in place over a three-year period of time. This is nothing new. This has been going on since 2017. With the taking the calculated risk that they would be able to bull rush their way through commerce and make sure that these massive inventories secure their needs through to the middle of this decade. And I think it's also important to understand that under normal circumstances, we would have been engaged in 2018 and 19 in a contracting period that would have continued on into this year, but it didn't take place. And the reason it didn't take place is because unbeknownst to us, our Russian, our domestic, excuse me, that was a Freudian slip there, our domestic utilities have been engaged in this ongoing collusion and massive contracting with the Russians and Kazakhs that have made sure that they don't need anything if they are allowed to keep those contracts in place, if they are grandfathered, if you will, they the then it is going to be very negative for our space for the next five years. And that's the harsh reality. So utilities, I think not unsurprisingly, are looking at their bottom line and thinking of this as a commercial transaction. The US uranium producers are seeing this or taking the position of uh, positioning this as a security issue to the government. Utilities are big, the lobbyists are paid well, you guys are small, you can you know punch above your weight, but it's still not enough to compete with these guys. So do you fear for the worst come January the 1st? Uh, I, I don't, and, I, and I'll tell you why, because I think that um, the good thing about the Department of Commerce, and I will say this is uh, the, the team that is negotiating this is their enforcement division. Uh, these guys are, I, I want to credit them. They're tough. They're, they're not going to be bullied. They're not going to be pushed around. And I, I think that while the utilities have a, a small, an army of lobbyists out there spending millions of dollars per year advocating for the Russians and for the Chinese and for other foreign governments, um, I think, as a matter of fact, with the joke inside the industry is I think they have more lobbyists than we actually have full-time employees left in the industry. Uh, so uh, that's a lot to overcome. But I don't think that the Department of Commerce is going to be bullied on this. At the end of the day, they will do what's in the best interest of the country. And I believe that they will act in a manner that is consistent with the outcome of the uh, of the working group report. Do you, but do you honestly believe that the if the utilities can get supply from wherever, that uh, the, the government is going to have a problem with that. I mean, the, the energy will be there for your population in the U.S. The energy's there short term. Do you think that's the problem of government, that they're thinking too short term? They're not? I think in the past that they have. And I think that until we brought Section 232, that was absolutely the case and nobody was going to contest it. So if Section 232 did nothing else, it led us to the working group. And the working group, with that high profile group of participants and the report that was released on April 23rd has led us to a high level of awareness of our dependency. And let's face it, coronavirus has contributed to this. We are now acutely aware of how dependent we are on critical drugs that come exclusively from China more than half of our critical minerals come from outside of the United States. And our rare earths, we are 80% dependent on the Chinese. So 
Now you're talking, now we have managed to work that into that same dialogue. When we're getting our nuclear fuel that constitutes 20% of our baseload energy in this country, and we're getting it predominantly from the Russians, we've got a major problem here. We cannot let this go on. So we've, we've brought it, we put it on the national stage. I think that that's a good thing. And I think that first of all, you, one other thing I would emphasize is that the United States government cannot afford to think too short term on this. They have to have the front end of the fuel cycle because if you do not have domestically produced uranium and conversion and enrichment, you can you do not have unobligated material that can be used for military purposes. We've got to fuel the nuclear navy. So I think that while they were thinking short term and perhaps they didn't put the emphasis on this that they should have in maybe over the last several years, I think that is no longer the case. I think this is not only that, but one of the things with the working group that I would emphasize, we not only have the support of this administration, we have the support, bipartisan support of Congress, and most importantly, short term, we have Dan Burlett as a very strong advocate for the fuel cycle. And, and so I think that we've got the support that we simply did not have even a year ago. Okay. Hypothesis. If the government doesn't help you, what can you do commercially to survive? Do you think you can survive in an environment where the government has done you no favours with regards to clarity over Russian suspension agreement? Um, is, that, is that possible? Yeah, I think that we, we can. Look, let's, let's, let's assume a zero scenario where uh, let's the the Russians prevail, uh, or I should say the utilities prevail in the Russian suspension agreement negotiations. And uh, we uh, get, there's no love there. And uh, there's massive quantities being allowed to come into the United States from Russia for the next 20 years. That's a bad thing. And uh, the working group, we don't get the 150 into the budget uh, and we're, we're left on our own. Once again, that's a bad thing. Uh, but I think that uh, first of all, we're in a position where we're in solid position for the next couple of years. That's not really an issue. When you have, when you consider that most of the uranium space has been living equity raise to equity raise for the last 10 years anyway, we simply a year, year and a half from now join their ranks. Uh, so we as a company feel like we're uniquely well positioned to withstand that. So I'm not terribly concerned about that. And I do think that there that the supply demand fundamentals are beginning to assert themselves. And I know that in the past we've had guys like Mike Alkin on the show. I, I of course uh, I know Mike very well, and uh, I think that he's doing some very very good analysis right now. And of course we all are familiar with the analysis of UX and and Jonathan Hinsey over there. So you have a couple of different schools of thought. Now if you listen to Mike, Mike will say, listen, things are much more dire than is being indicated by the industry experts read UX. Okay, so who's right? Well, we don't know for sure. But one of the things that we do know is that Cameco has been shut down to the tune of 36 million pounds per year, this morning's announcement, announcement notwithstanding. And we know that the Kazakhs have been shut down and uh, the Kazakhs have some unique issues of their own. Uh, coronavirus is... Uh, has been particularly plaguing them and their production facilities, and um, and winter is looming. So, how long do the do the Kazakhs stay shut down? That's a question that nobody. I don't think anybody can answer. I don't even think the Kazakhs would give you a 
firm answer to that right now. So we are in a position where the supply-demand fundamentals could reassert themselves in a very big way by the end of the year. Well, well let's talk about that because this morning, as you say, Cameco uh, quarterly, Tim Getzel came out and said, well, one of, well, he said quite a bit, but the, the, the big thing that people will be talking about is the reopening of Cigar Lake in September, or restarting of Cigar Lake in September. And obviously it takes a, it'll take a while to ramp up, but the... I think the general reaction so far, it's only been a few hours, has been quite negative. I think people would like Kazatom Prom, um, you know, to continue to remain shut down. They would like Kamiko, who shut down for the right reasons and said that they would reopen for the right reasons, different reasons, but the right reasons, i.e. we need to either sweep up inventory in the market, spare inventory in the marketplace, and we need the price to get back to where it should be for us all of us to be able to mine and produce economically. So why would they not take this opportunity to reinforce that message? Why open up quickly, so quickly? Let me say here, I, I have a lot of respect for Chemico as a company. Uh, they are the bellwether in our industry. I mean, you know, they, as I used to say about IBM, they're not the market, they're the environment. Um, in some ways, uh, while that really is Kazakhstan, Chemico is in the in the commercial markets. So, what they do matters, and I think that this morning's announcement took the market by surprise because it is absolutely inconsistent with market pronouncements that they've made over the last two years. Since they shut down MacArthur River, they stated very straightforwardly, Tim Gitzel did, that they were basically taking a page out of the Converdine playbook where. We're going to go out there. We're going to soak up as much material as we possibly can out in the marketplace. Then we're going to announce appropriate shutdowns. And then they, so that was more than two years ago with, with MacArthur River. And with Cigar Lake, that was earlier in the year. And they attributed it at the time to coronavirus, COVID, and said that they felt that it was a good opportunity to do exactly what Converdine had done, and that is really soak up excess inventory and secondary supply in the marketplace and to bring the market back into equilibrium. And I think everybody applauded those comments. And we were really starting to see some movements, seeing some strength in the space over the course of the last couple of weeks, particularly as the, let's just say, uncertainty regarding Kazatomprom and what their actions would be in the months ahead has arisen. And and uh, I, I thought that Riaz spoke to those quite eloquently when he was when he was on your program. So uh, this is something that really is a bit confounding from the standpoint that, wait a minute, you, you said that you were going to do these very good things. Now you come out and you're, you're telling me you're going to ramp up. They had some uh, they had some very light contingency language in there saying, well, this could be coronavirus contingent. But why they would make a comment that would knock down their own stock by 15%, I, I really, that baffles any commercial or market player. But, that, but that's, the, that's the arbitrage between the ethics, because there's people involved here. There's people, I know people are fully covered, etc. but they're trying to run a commercial business. We don't know what conversations they've been having with utilities from around the world. Again, Tim was skirted around who where they might be but there's obviously conversations going on and the in the terms of those contracts it might be good news for the industry well i think that it might be as well and and uh i think that uh, you know this once again depends on who you believe 
uh, you know, we've, and we, you and I have talked about this. I mean, is it the very small deficit that UX believes that it is? Is it the 30 plus, 35 plus million pounds that Mike Halpin believes it is with this analysis? Now, there's a big disparity there. Who's correct? Well, we don't, I think that's hard to say because most of us don't do the kind of deep dive that those guys do in terms of analyzing the industry. You guys certainly do a very good job of it. You get everybody on there that's relevant and, and you get a lot of different viewpoints. These guys really tear apart the numbers. I, I, frankly, I, I, I hate to confess it, but I don't do that. You know, I, I run a uranium company. I've always wanted to be a primary supplier to the domestic industry here in the United States. And, and that's the business model. I didn't want to be anything beyond that. These guys really dive much deeper. So who's correct? How deep is the deficit this year? Well, we do know that right now at least 46 million pounds will come out of the market in 2020. We do know that the targets for primary supply in the market are somewhere in the 110 to 120 million range, uh, down from 138 million last year. So some of that maybe gets made up, some of it doesn't. Um, but if you're if you're down around those numbers, we do know that consumption is going to be upwards of 180 million pounds. That's a very large um, uh, delta there. There's a very large differential there. So how is it made up? We know that you can't make up the entire amount with secondary supply and underfeeding. So there is going to be a deficit in the market. How large that deficit is, we simply don't know. So we'll have to wait to see some of these things play out. I personally would have liked to have seen. Uh, Cameco simply do what they said they were going to do, and that is really be a force for good and help this market regain its equilibrium once again. Um, I can't explain this to you. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. I think you know, the, there's some very clever guys out there, but they're as good as the data that they're given access to. And I think the problem with this opaque market is there's a lot of data which is, is unknown. Um, so it's been a little bit of guesswork for the last couple of, couple of years in, in a very meaningful way. Um, that that said, Cameco's move has changed the perception of the market. I think what the market said today, with all of these, you know, these companies seeing red, is that people, investors, would like to have seen Cameco stay out of the market for a little bit longer, possibly until the new year. That would definitely give us a view of the uh, amount of lost pounds in the market. It would definitely give ad advance that kind of su the supply demand. Uh, metrics that we've been looking at from even if whatever you think the numbers are of UXC or, or trade tech or, or some of the funds it, it, it's a bit more obvious and it would seem seemingly be show a bit more control over the ability to bring the price price discovery back to the market so I think overall it's been quite disappointing news this morning but again like I say we don't know what other conversations Cameco has had so well, let's take a look at it this way. If it, if it takes some months to ramp up, then perhaps those scenarios are still intact where we were really envisioning with both the chemical primary properties being shut down and the Kazakh property um, remain, properties remaining offline, at least for the time being, uh, for an unknown duration. We didn't know that. But we and our, mar our market strategists felt that we would see $40 plus pricing by the end of the year. And I think that we, despite the fact that we've had experienced a bit of weakness 
we can attribute that to what we know has been some short selling in the marketplace. And there's guys that are trying to game that delta between Converdine and Port Hope. That's an issue. Uh, and there are there are guys that are trying to game that, and so we know that there's been short sellers in the marketplace. And I think that's account of the that's has what has led to the short term market weakness. But we didn't feel that that would last very long, and we felt that especially once we got past September first, August is kind of a throwaway month, as we all know. Once we got past September first, we felt that we would see this perhaps slow but inexorable rise up to uh, that forty dollar mark and beyond by the end of the year. I still think that that is a distinct possibility, depending on what Cameco's actions are here. And if if uh, if some of the analysts projections are correct, Cigar Lake will not be enough to halt that. It will not be enough to prevent $40 from happening by the end of the year. So some of those more aggressive uh, projections are, are in fact going to be the ones we see play out. Exciting times, Jeff. We're going to have to wait and see what the impact's going to be for sure. Uh, timing of term contracts being done in any kind of meaningful way. Anyone's guess at the moment. So I uh, Thanks so much for your time, as ever. Frank, to the point, love it. We got hopefully some more news soon. Let me just say thanks for the what you guys are doing because you're keeping it out there. And not only that, but you're doing it in a very even-handed way. You're putting the right guys in front of the screen that know what they're talking about, can tell the story, and it allows investors to at least weigh the information for themselves and make educated decisions based on our industry. And for that, I really I, I thank you. I appreciate it. I'm getting a warm, tingly feeling, Jeff. That was very, very sweet of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.